Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. have a really interesting guest this week, a really fascinating uh, story to, to tell. I am interviewing William Jackson. Now, William, he is a former monk, a former Buddhist monk. Um, I don't think we're going to get a lot of chances to, to talk to someone who had, had lived that experience. Um, he was a, a Buddhist monk in in Europe and then um, in and Burma and Tibet. Uh, so he's going to tell us just about the daily life of a, a monk. Um, you know, I think we all have kind of these, uh, maybe these con- conceived notions that are, are, maybe some of them are true and maybe some of them are not. Uh, definitely an eye-opening uh, conversation to me. Some things that he told me, I, I had absolutely no idea. Um, some of the things that, you know, that we we look at monks and, and think they are in, in these things um, are are not necessarily the truth. That's that's what happens a lot. Um, there's other things that are exactly what you 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 might think. Um, but I really really enjoyed speaking with him. I was honored to to have the uh, opportunity. Um, he's going to tell us just a little bit about his life before, because uh, he did grow up in the United States. Um, he had a, a theater background and and why he decided to to go and become a monk, and then. Afterwards, after that experience, um, and and let me say that he gives us a lot of really, really funny and and really crazy stories from his experiences in in you know in Asia and being a monk in the middle of the jungle and and just some of the the things that he experienced. Um, but but we go from you know beforehand and what made him become a monk, his daily life as a monk, some really cool stories. And then also what he is doing now with what he learned um, in his time being a monk. Because he does have a business now um, that deals with meditation. We're going to talk a lot about meditation and the benefits of that. Uh, It's not just a a meditation podcast, though. The big thing is just to hear about his experiences. Um, But I, I do think that there's there's good things to, to be had in meditation. If, if anyone um, is kind of a, a highlight of that, it's him because, you know, that's what he did for, for seven years quite a bit. Um, and he's just, he's a great guy. So so I really did appreciate his time. Enough um, of the preamble here. Here is my interview with William Jackson. I'm here today with William Jackson. William, how are you? Good. I'm, I'm doing great. Good, good. Well, I, I definitely want to get all into, you know, skillful means and you, uh, I guess your life as a Buddhist monk in the past. But before that, let's kind of start at the beginning and tell us just a little bit about growing up. I read kind of in your bio that you're a self-described punk growing up. So let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I used to get in, in trouble a, a little bit uh, while I was growing <laughs> up and, um, you know, to the point of where some some parents were a little bit nervous, me um, hanging out with their with their with their uh, with their kids, and um, you know, I used to organize some some parties here and there, and 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 in general, I feel like making social connections was a lot more important to me than than schoolwork. Yeah. <laughs> and then as I grew, you know, I still the social connections are still important to me, um, but I found a different way found a different way to handle stress. Well, here's my question. It's, it's a silly one. 
Has anyone ever made the whole connection since you used the word punk? Have anyone ever said punk to monk? Because I think that's pretty cool. Oh, that's pretty good. I should, I should write that down. There you go. I'm surprised that's the first time you'd heard it. I thought that'd be yeah. something like, yeah, I get that all the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you, I mean, you, you obviously, you said that, you know, you maybe were just a, a little rougher as a kid, but, but not too much, but let's talk a yeah. little bit about beyond that. I know that you had, you, you went off and, and I went to school in, in England and, and had quite the journey then. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I you know, I went to uh, acting school because when I was in high school, <clears throat> my, my grades were not great. And um, I had one teacher who really believed in my acting skills. I actually used to do some characters um, to distract the students from from class. This is a chorus teacher, and eventually he um, said, "Man, you should you should follow this because I the characters that I did, I would pretend to be the characters for like half of the day in school." <laughs> and he just encouraged me. Uh, which was kind of what I needed at the time. And then <clears throat> I ended up going to a school for acting for the last two years of high school and then into, into college. And, you know, you're doing all this exploration in acting school, your body and, you know, your voice and all this stuff. And um, uh, they sent us to England for three months to learn Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I, um, I found a book in the in this like Christian missionary place where we were staying, they had open rooms, and it was a book by the Dalai Lama, which was um, uh, how to practice the way to a meaningful life. So I was like, all right, you know, I heard the Dalai Lama seems like a pretty chill guy. Why don't I read a little bit? And um, I, you know, after reading like half the book, one sentence that caught me is um, when what you uh, want to do and what is like healthy for you and others become the same thing, that's enlightenment. And I was like, okay, like I can buy that. And so that sort of sparked me into um, uh, uh, practicing meditation. He said, if you practice for 30 minutes every day, you can, you know, for three months, you can develop calm abiding. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool too. Why don't I do it? And, you know, as I practiced, I started to have cool experiences and also meaningful experiences. Um, you know, I can get into like the kind of neat experiences uh, uh, as well, like things that you see in, in meditation. But um, really there was a key moment for me where I started to understand my own feelings, my own emotions much more deeply. And I was able to share that with some other people and got some good feedback um, uh, from, you know, adults who were listening to what I was saying um, and valued what I was saying. And I think from coming from this place of where <clears throat> I was always getting in trouble to having people really respecting me, like in a Christian missionary, there's like missionaries from all over the world. They're listening to me about what I'm saying about emotions and connection with people. That really hooked me um, and got me excited about meditation. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would be interested to hear, and I'll tell you my experience with meditation is one single session in, in a class. Cause I, I, I teach at a university and one of the other professors, you know, said, Hey, I'm having somebody come in and talk about meditation. If you want to sit in on it. I was like, yeah, that's, I, it's nothing I, I know too much about. So I'll sit in. So they literally, my whole experience with meditation is about a 30 minute presentation yeah. that this person gave. So, and it was, and I, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, I felt, I guess, kind of calm, I guess, calmer afterwards, but I don't know yeah. about, you know, you were talking about um, you know, these experiences you had. So I would be interested to hear exactly what, what that entails. 
Yeah, meditation can be pretty cool. I mean, there's all different types. You know, you have like these yogic, you know, Hindu meditations and uh, Vedic religions. Um, what I'm familiar with mostly is a Buddhist meditation from being a, being a monk for a while. And, um, you know, there's, there's some cool things that happen. You know, if you start meditating 15, 20, 30 minutes, right? That's like the beginning. And if you do that for a number of weeks in a row, like three, four weeks in a row, that's when you're going to start to notice not just relaxation, but the effects of mindfulness, right? So that is reduced stress and anxiety throughout the day, <clears throat> a better understanding of your body and understanding of your thoughts, that sort of thing. Um, uh, it takes time for the brain to really change and perceive things in, in a new way. Then if you increase the meditation a little bit, 45 minutes, an hour, well, now you start getting into space where it starts to feel really good to meditate, right? You're feeling the breath and all of a sudden the breath just feels like amazing. You know, it just feels so good to breathe in and out and your mind gets really calm and clear. You start having creative ideas. You start remembering things from your childhood. Um, and then, and this is like how much time most people have, right? Most of the meditation classes I teach, I don't teach people more than an hour of meditation on a regular basis. People just don't have the time. You know, but if you want to shave your head, put on a robe and like go to the jungle, there's some neat stuff you can learn as well. And when you start developing meditation, three, four, five, ten hours a day, um, some cool things start happening. You know, later stages of meditation, you start as you focus on the sensation of breathing, there's sort of a synesthesia that happens where you start to get you almost start to see with your eyes closed, like a cloudy, smoky, white sort of thing then that solidifies into like a very clear, like white disc. And then there's a little star that sort of pops in the middle. And this is just from your concentration developing over time. So it's this, uh, and then eventually that becomes your object of meditation. And you go back thousands of years and it happens to just about everybody who develops concentration to a certain level. And when you go to these monasteries in Burma and the jungle, these are like the Olympians of meditation. You know, we look at somebody in the Olympics who's running super fast. Like, wow, I can't imagine, you know, they're just born that way, whatever. Um, it's incredible to watch these people. Now, people who do that with their mind, right? These meditation teachers, like they're so sharp. They pick up on the most subtle movements, the way that you talk. They know things about you just from developing that insight. And you can feel like, is this person reading my mind? And in some way, yeah, they are, because they're so sensitive to every movement, which is an expression of your mind, um, that they do know things about you. They are reading your mind just by the way that you move or whatever. Um, so you, you know, some pretty cool experiences where I walk in, see a meditation teacher, and he, I don't say a thing, and he says, this problem that you're having in your meditation, do this and then do that. Okay, next. And it's just like, how do they know that? Um, so there's pretty cool, you know, lots of interesting little tidbits about meeting some of these, these masters. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that, that does sound interesting. So, you know, you, you say you teach meditation now, have you, have you gotten any of those skills yourself? Do you, do you feel like you can read people and, and do the same thing? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in meditation, uh, like if you ever go to a monastery or meet a monk, like, um, in that culture, it's considered like rude to ask them about their 
you know, stage of enlightenment sort of thing. But like, that doesn't, you know, for me, I don't, you know, I don't care. Like, I think it's totally um, fine. So sometimes if you go and ask a monk, they're not going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, they won't tell you about what they can see or the, the levels that they've achieved. But, you know, there's these different stages of meditation that you can get to, which are considered, you know, okay, there's like an attainment or like a stage of meditation. Um, and like, from a monk perspective, I'm, I'm a beginner, you know, from a lay person perspective, I'm like an expert, you know, so yeah. I'm like in that little place where I start, you know, I, I experience this sort of you know, uh, it's called an animita, uh, where you can actually see the breath. And it's like, there's a white thing that appears. And when it first happened to me, I was like, am I crazy? Am I like, great, now I'm, now I'm schizophrenic or whatever. <laughs> I'm seeing things. Um, and um, then all of a sudden I read in a book, it like clearly described exactly what was happening. And then I, you know, go to a you know monastery where they're all teaching the same sort of system. Yeah. So that was pretty cool for me. But absolutely, in terms of, being able to understand people more because um, ultimately if you're talking to somebody and they say something to you, you're really only feeling your experience. You're not actually feeling what somebody else is feeling. You're really only ever experiencing your own mind and your own body, right? So your own body is a tool for that. So as you gain insight in meditation, you are more sensitive to your own body and what your body is like when you're alone. And then when you interact with somebody, you start to feel different feelings and you can kind of pick up some things that you understand about other people in a way. And, you know, as a therapist, that comes in handy. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So I guess the question I would have is, how did you go from, you know, being very good at meditation and, and kind of being the expert lay person at it to deciding, let me take this next step and actually become a monk? When I was in college, I started doing the meditation and then all of a sudden I, uh, I met a monk. So my, a good friend of mine, we used to, you know, experiment with all sorts of different types of meditation stuff and like psychedelics and that sort of thing in, in college. And there was this moment, uh, when he, he, he texted me or called me. He's like, Hey, there's this monk coming to, uh, come into our school. You should come check him out. And I had like rehearsal or something like that. I said, just ask him a question, ask him, what's the last thing that you uh, experienced before enlightenment? Or what's the, you know, what's the last thing you let go of before enlightenment? And um, that was the question that, uh, that I sent him off with to meet this monk. Now, if we rewind back to my times when I was organizing parties and, you know, experimenting with other sort of things when I was younger, the first time I ever did uh, mushrooms when I was when I was younger, I um, I had a moment uh, as a teenager where I thought if I screw up everything in my life, you know I screw totally screw up and like because I was always getting in trouble, um, I can always go be a monk on a hill. If I mess everything up, they'll accept me, right? You know, and um, I also had other sort of thoughts of like, I could screw up, you know, two or three times and start over and I'd still be okay. Like there's a lot to do in this life. And those were really, those made me feel much better. Um, those are helpful insights. So now fast forward, I, I send my friend off to this monk, like what's the last thing that you, that happens before you become enlightened. And um, when my friend goes and meets the guy and comes back, he said, 
I don't know. The monk said to me, you don't have to wait until everything goes wrong to go be a monk on a hill. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And, and so that, that hooked me. So I was like, all right, I want to meet this guy. So I went, you know, I met the guy. We're talking through a translator. You know, at the time I was auditioning in uh, Los Angeles, New York. Uh, as I was graduating from school, I landed a manager in LA. I was supposed to audition for some Clint Eastwood movie. And I wanted to go um, on a meditation retreat. I wanted to you know, go further in my meditation because I had started having these kind of cool experiences and I wanted to talk with somebody who knew what was happening. So through a translator, um, I said, can I go on a meditation retreat? And he said, um, oh, you can't become a monk that easy. And I said, no, 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 I'm not interested because I don't want to become a monk. That's not my thing. I just want to come for meditation. He said, okay. And so, you know, I went, I stayed for three months, started meditating more and more and not just meditation, but doing like these insight retreats where they're doing group exercises and sort of thing, understanding myself more. And that hooked me. So I started getting more interested in, in, in meditation and three, five months and I stayed and I, then I ordained after I think five or six months um, as, as a monk. And um, that was my first teacher. And then later on, I went and studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, studied with uh, the Pat Uksaira, um, Uruvata, one of his students, and, and a couple other teachers. Um, but that was, that's what sort of drew me in. Yeah. So how did, I mean, so I don't know anything about, you know, the, the Buddhist religion or culture or anything like that. So how do you ordain as a monk? I mean, myself, I'm Catholic. So obviously I know ordaining as a priest and, and as a monk in the Catholic religion, but yeah. I don't really know what the process is in, in the Buddhist one. Yeah. So you, first you have to become like an aspirant, which is you have to say like, I'm interested in becoming a monk. And um, then you go through this sort of trial period where you're starting to hold certain vows, like, you know, you're not lying, not stealing, you know, all like the Christian vows are very similar to no killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, taking intoxicants, you know, all that sort of stuff. You abstain from all that. And now me, you know, going in there, I just stopped drinking, smoking, all this sort of stuff. And that was hard because as a, as a monk, as, as a you know, person day to day, like those were my outlets for stress. Uh, and then when I became a monk, I was like overwhelmed. I was so stressed out because I, I had to let go of all my coping mechanisms, like the socially appropriate coping, coping mechanisms and, um, and learn how to handle stress and difficulties in a different way. And that's where the meditation sort of comes in. You start practicing more and more, learning different ways to respond, react, calm the mind, uh, that sort of thing. So you start holding some of those vows. And if you can do it, and it seems, you know, you're, you're going to be able to do this, then they say, okay, you can ordain as a novice. So I spent two years as a novice dealing with lots of stress and learning meditation, learning like different chanting and like Vietnamese and Sanskrit uh, and Chinese, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then you learn about sort of Buddhist psychology as well. So you learn um, about, you know, things like that suffering exists in the world and that there's a source of suffering and that you, the way you respond to the world has to do with um, your suffering and all that sort of thing. And Buddhism is a little bit different than other religions where you're not worshiping God in any way, right? So like God, no God, sure. Like some Buddhist monks believe in a God, they have a little 
you know, even have a little Jesus statue or something like that, and others don't. Um, but it's more about practicing this meditation, these techniques um, will bring about more insight, more clarity, and that is helpful no matter what sort of thing. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then when you fully ordain, you hold like 227 vows. Some of them are pretty simple because they're from 2000 years ago, like wash your hands after you go to the bathroom type thing. Um, but yeah, you're a cel celibate monk um, and you sort of give up your um, job as a, as a partner to somebody else. You give up your job as a son or daughter, whatever it happens to be. Um, and you sort of step out of the normal society. Uh, and your job really is developing meditation and insight uh, to be a, a point of clarity to help other people. Uh, and that was awesome for a while. I mean, it was really hard the first two years. I was pretty stressed out. Um, you know, I remember holding a Buddha relic over somebody's head, um, like supposedly blessing them, but I was like arguing with somebody in my head, you know, like, I can't believe so-and-so didn't do the dishes, you know, like, and, and I felt really stressed out because I'm supposed to be this enlightened guy with a shaved head, but here I am stressing about like a normal everyday thing. Yes. So, I mean, you, you've mentioned obviously in, you, you mentioned a couple of times in the morning, you know, you have those chants. What does the daily life of somebody who is a monk, I assume you were in, were you in a monastery or is, is yeah. that, so what does the yeah. daily life look like as a monk in a monastery? And then kind of furthermore, the thing that I kind of wonder is how, I guess, outward facing is it like, how often do you interact with other people? Like again, with, with priests and stuff, you know, they're in the community trying to, to spread the word. And I know, I don't feel like that's necessarily the case with being a monk. Yeah. You're not really trying to like preach anything. Um, but right. I, so what's, what's the daily life look like? And then how much of it is, you know, outward facing in the community? Yeah. So the daily life looks a little bit different. I'll give you like sort of two scenarios. So there's like city monks and forest monks. So my first monastery was near a city. And I think in that you, um, you know, we get up in the morning, like uh, 4, 4.35 in the morning. And, you know, there's this little old nun that's banging a big, you know, bell, like bong, bong, like waking everybody up. And she's like chanting like, Namo Ayidafa, you know, like praise to the Buddha sort of thing. Um, and then everybody sort of slowly wakes up and makes their way down to the, the uh, meditation hall. And you all sit in front of like statues of the Buddha sort of thing, or like one little one or whatever your monastery is. And you'll usually chant a little bit and meditate a little bit. So sometimes people chant first or meditate first, depends on the monastery, but you'll, you'll chant something like, um, Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa, which is like praise to the Buddha or whatever. And then the whole thing about chanting about the way is open, it's clear, it's not secret, sort of chanting sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, and then you'll, you'll meditate for 30 minutes, an hour, depending. Uh, and then, um, you know, we would have a little bit of time to exercise or do something uh, before breakfast. And if you're in, uh, what's a, there's kind of two main types of traditions. If you're, if you're in a Mahayana tradition, you, you might make breakfast or um, the monks participate in cooking, that sort of thing. 
if you're in a Theravada uh, monastery, which is more strict, you go out and you beg for your food or people bring food to the monastery. So you don't, you're not allowed to touch food or prepare it or have it in, in the monastery. Um, and this was sort of... One thing I want to ask about that. So is that... Are those, is that kind of tradition, the ones that I see like videos of that are like walking and people are like giving them baskets of food and things like that? Yeah. So that's Pindapata, which is like walk and put stuff in, which means yeah. like, you know, they walk around with a bowl. So uh. the traditional monks, you're only, uh, the only things that you own are a robe and a bowl and that's it. So like when I became a monk, all my clothes, my CDs, because there's CDs back then, right? I gave up all my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so all I had was my robe, my robe, bowl, and you know, a couple other small things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the Theravada mm-hmm. is you're mostly just gonna see them with a bowl and a robe. Mm-hmm. And then Mahayana is a little bit more lax. So they'll cook, they often will handle money as well. Um, uh, and um, so that was my first, my first monastery is a Mahayana monastery. And I later went and started practicing the Theravada. So I, I ended up, you know, just having the robe in the bowl, begging for food sort of thing for, for a while as well. Um, but then, you know, you have like a work period. My, my job in the monastery was organizing events. So I organized events for big teachers and would email them and, you know, invite them to come and, and give uh, talks. And I would organize the meditation retreat. Um, so we got to practice with all sorts of different, different monks. Um, then you have lunch another maybe small work period. You might have like a nap time. Usually there's like a nap period, uh, <laughs> which is nice. It's a nice, it's kind of a nice life. Yeah. You know? uh, and then another sort of two to three hour work period. Um, and then uh, like a chanting or a, a small meditation in the afternoon and then dinner. And then you had like a class or you'd be cleaning the monastery or you know, there's always some big project that they're working on where you have like a bunch of monks with like their robe tied up to the side, digging or, you know, moving stuff um, mm-hmm. that they should have a professional doing, but they're all trying to do it themselves. <laughs> yeah. And so that's like a city monk. Uh-huh. Uh, a forest monk is pretty much like, you know, when I went and lived at Pa Oak Forest Monastery in Burma, you get up, you meditate, then you eat. Then you meditate, you go to the bathroom, then you meditate. And then you go see your meditation teacher. And then you go back and you meditate. And then go to the bathroom, then meditate. And you only have two meals. So you have a 5 a.m. meal and a 10 a.m. meal. And that's all the food. And the rest of the time, you're just meditating nonstop. So 10, 14 hours a day in meditation practice. It's, it's a pretty intense schedule. Um, and uh, a lot of monks will just do that as a retreat. So usually also you're supposed to take at least three months a year to do a, a retreat, something like that. Usually not as intense as that um, uh, each year. And that's called your Vasa. So if a monk is four Vasa, it means he's done four three-month retreats. If he's 10 Vasa, he's done 10 uh, three-month retreats. Hmm. Things as well. Yeah, that would be intense. Obviously in you know, Western culture and go, 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 I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine that. I feel like I would, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but I just felt like that would be, I wouldn't know what I was doing. I'd be bored at at some point. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty (laughs) to sit there all day. If you don't have a technique, Uh it can be maddening. Uh But then once you have that sort of technique, your mind just gets sharper and clearer. 
Um, and then you started having these moments where you just stopped thinking hmm. completely. And I remember the first time I was like, oh my God, did my brain stop working? Um, but actually it starts to become this like beautiful place where you actually get to rest, like your soul gets to rest, so. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you kind of told us about, um, you know, the, the daily life there, but what are some common misconceptions that, that people do have about monks and, and monasteries that's not necessarily the case? Yeah, so when I first went to the monastery, I was like, I'm sitting on the plane, you know, I'm going, going to Europe and I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. There's going to be like dragons out front and like people are going to be doing Kung Fu and like, you know, I was like psyched as this is going to be beautiful Buddha statues everywhere. And it's going to be in the forest. And I showed up and the place was like an old print factory. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a square box on the side of the road. And I was like, nah, like, no way. <laughs> I flew all the way out here for this. Um, and then I, you know, I went inside and it was like, it's like a community center. You know, it was like my church growing up. You know, I grew up, I was confirmed. I was like, I grew up in, you know, going to church camp and that sort of thing. And, um, and it's like for the Asian community in the city, it was like a place for them to go and and hang out and they go and they cook food for the monks and, you know, they chit chat, like all the gossip happens at the monastery and, um, you know, when there's a large event, like a, like a holiday, you know, the monastery is used to celebrate. And then people, they go and they ask the monks for advice about their life. Uh, and a lot of monks don't meditate. So this is like what a lot of monks wouldn't want me saying, but a lot of monks don't meditate at all. Hmm. You, know, you go into monasteries, like I went, I went to Sri Lanka for a while and I felt like I had to teach monks how to meditate because it becomes more of just like ritual. They, they're like a placeholder in society. They do their certain tasks. So like a lot of monks don't wanna be monks, but they don't have another way to go or their family was poor. So they sent one of the kids off to the monastery um, so they can be taken care of. Is, it, is there a lot of people um, that, that do what you did and, and kind of move there and become monks? Um, I guess from the Western world, like how, how accepted were you in between all of these Burmese and Sri Lankan people that are, you know, born kind of into it, as you were saying, um, you know, they've been sent there from the community. Were you accepted as, you know, this American or? Yeah, it was my first time of like being, you know, the, the, the foreigner, like the odd one out. Uh, and that was a, it's not quite the same because I feel like all over the world, Americans are treated a little bit differently. You know, if you go to India, you're treated like special because you're a white American. Um, But like, it was my first time in that place. I remember being in Burma uh, with all the Burmese, like young monks. because I was was the youngest white monk there. There were only a couple other like old fogies uh, who were monks who had been practicing meditation for a long time. Um, so I stuck out like a sore thumb. They, they, people would tease me a little bit and be like, oh, you know, like, you know, there's the white monk sort of coming in. They had a name for me. I can't even remember. They called me something. But I was trying, I was like practicing really hard because I wanted to fit in, you know. And I remember I finally I got sick in Burma because, you know, like I grew up in suburbia, like literally white picket fences you know, and 
uh, I wasn't used to living in a hut with insects and, you know, the blistering heat nonstop. And that's a lot. I mean, psychologically, that is an intense thing. I don't know anybody, none of my friends are going to Burma to sit in the hut with like, you know, when you learn the difference, when you know the difference between a tick, flea, ant bite, a, a cockroach licking you, and, you know, when you actually know the difference between these, you know, which is which, <laughs> you know, you, you, you've made it as a <laughs> but like, that was the, 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 the translation of culture was really hard for me. Um, but eventually I got sick and I remember them walking past the infirmary and they're like, Oh, if you get sick, you can do it. You know, like teasing me. Um, they're like, they're like taking bets. Like, Oh yeah, you knew it. You thought he could, you know, sort of thing. Uh, but that was mostly just with the young monks. The, the older monks were really wonderful. They were, they were really great. I think they, they, they didn't care one, one way or the other where you came from, um, which, was, which was really nice. Yeah, as weird as it sounds, I almost like to hear that, you know, oh, these monks that I guess the stereotype that we have is everyone's just, you know, so calm and enlightened and stuff like that, that they're still kind of razzing you and, and oh, yeah. taking bets and stuff. I, I kind of like yeah. to hear that. This makes yeah. it seem a little bit more, I guess, like everyone's kind of the, the same. So I like that. Yeah. So, um, and I want to make sure that we talk about, you know, what, what you're doing now, but I don't want to, I guess, go away from, from this without at least having you tell maybe one or two of your, your favorite stories from your time. Um, you, you mentioned in, in, in what you, you gave me before this interview, several ones, climbing a mountain, almost falling into a river, saving a Canadian hiker, almost getting bit by a centipede, typhoid. So just, just a yeah. couple of things, but just maybe, maybe one or two of your, your favorites from there. Sure. Yeah. So when I was in Burma um, at Pa Oak Monastery, there, um, you know, I'd never been to South Asia and like, you know, the, the environment and the, the weather is very different. I had never been through a rains, you know, rainy season. Hmm. And like when it rains in a rainy season, it is not like raining in the United States. It is a different animal altogether. I brought, a, I brought an umbrella with me um, to, you know, for when it rained. And um, when I took the umbrella out, the monks, other monks started laughing at me. I'm like, why are you laughing at it? I think my umbrella looks funny. Like, what's their problem? And then it started to rain. And it rained so hard that my umbrella immediately broke. And so I'm trying to hold like a piece of the umbrella over my head. And all the monks are walking by with these like industrial, you know, umbrellas to, to keep the rain out. Like when it rains, your whole foot is underwater. Like that's how hard that it rains in, in rainy season in Burma. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, all the way up mid-calf. And that's, I didn't realize all the monks' robes, they only go mid-calf. And I thought, why is this for so long? And then I realized, because Buddhism, you know, came from here and these, all these traditions sort of stayed. stayed. Um, so I was, it was in rains retreat uh, or in the rains, uh, rainy season. And um, all the power went out. I was up at the top of the mountain, sort of in the, in the meditation hall, all the power went out and I had to walk back to my kuti, which is a small hut. Uh, and it was pitch black and I'm like in the jungle, 
you have to walk down these stairs, then follow this path back through the woods. And like, the only thing that I have is the lightning. So every time the lightning flashes, I go a little bit further, mm -hmm. right? And I sort of know the way I can see a little bit of the light, but it's, you know, pitch black, no power. So I walk out of the Sima Hall, which is the meditation hall. And there are these, these uh, sort of white marble stairs that go down like, you know, 10 flights down the side of the mountain. And so, um, and there's a, a metal roof over it. So as I'm walking, um, I'm like walking down, I'm holding the railing and I'm just hearing like, it's like splashing, but it's also like crunch, 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 crunch. I'm like, oh, it must be sick. There must be tons of leaves because there's always these big heavy leaves that are cracking. Mm -hmm. Then the light flashes and it is just insects and small animals and like centipedes writhing in the, and then the, then the light goes out and I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> so I'm just like running down the stairs, like crunch, 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 crunch. Um, and then I get down to the bottom and there's this big pool of water. And if you Google giant centipede, a giant red centipede and see the picture, it's going to freak you out. But that's what was, there's like three of them in the water, like drowning. And if you get bit by one, it can take down an elephant. So it's like, you'll, you, you die, your leg swell, swells up. You don't get to the hospital right away. You're done. And like, I'm in the jungle. So I just like leap over, over these and I'm like running back to my, my kuti. Um, and it just poured all night. And I thought it poured so hard and the wind was blowing and it blew the shutters off of my kuti. So like rain is pouring in. Like, this is crazy. Like this is, it rains like this all the time. And there's water flowing under my kuti like a river, like I couldn't even get out. And that and all of the cooties are on stilts. And I thought, this is intense. Like, I can't believe it rains like this all the time. It turns out there was like a hurricane. There was a cyclone. This was like 2009, 2008, 2009. There was a cyclone that like destroyed half of the country. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea it was, it was coming. Nobody told you, because you're just living in a hut in the woods. Right. So there's no TV, there's no radio, nothing. Um, and like, I don't speak the language of anybody's, you know, except for my meditation teacher speaks English and that's it. Uh, and so I had no idea, but like half of the countryside was destroyed. Hmm. Like the whole city of Yangon was like destroyed. Um, and because of that, I ended up getting, you know, something happened with our uh, uh, sanitation system. I don't exactly know what happened. And I ended up getting typhoid. Um, so I actually, I almost died in Burma. So cyclone, I got typhoid. I had to go to the hospital. So whenever I go to a Burmese hospital, you know, like they try their best. There's some good doctors there, but it was a, you know, disaster. Um, I almost got electrocuted there. It's like, oh my goodness. Like, we were laying on the bed and they're spreading water all over my chest. And then I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they take these metal electrode sort of things and they're putting them on my chest. And I look up and there's a guy with a screwdriver and a plug trying to jam it into the socket. And I'm like, please take off. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was just mayhem, you know? And eventually they flew me back to the, you know, uh, to Europe where I was staying at the time. But it was, it was crazy. So that was, that was one, that was my like Burma sort of, um, scary part of being in Burma. In, I'd in say so. I'd say so. That was kind of a several all in one. Yeah. Whew. <laughs>
So that's Burma. And, you know, the mountain story is about Tibet. In the Tibetan tradition, this is the Dalai Lama type tradition, they believe that Mount Kailash is the center of the universe. Um, so this is this big mountain in, uh, in Tibet that you, and so they, a lot of them circumambulate it. So, I mean, they, they do a hike around it. And then what they do is a lot of the traditional people, they bow, they go down, they bow and they stand up and then they bow, they stand up, they bow. They do prostrations around the entire mountain. So they wear these gloves with like these leather gloves and the pads on their knees. And they just do that around the whole mountain, like up the mountain and around. Uh, and um, so we decided to do this, uh, to just hike around it as a group. We went with people from the monastery. It's like a, you know, it's like a church trip sort of thing. Um, and we got in like forerunners and we drove through like all these dirt roads and mountainside. And it's like, it's, the altitude's high because it's, you know, it's in the Himalayas. So um, it's 3,500 meters. So that's like, yeah, nine, 10,000 feet sort of is where you, oh, no, sorry, that's where you start. And we go up to 6,000 meters. So that's like 18,000 feet. It's, it's really high elevation. So we have oxygen and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so we start hiking around. We get to the mountain, we start hiking around and it's so high that a couple of people start like losing it. So um, some of them were like, falling down, they're on their knees, you know, like needing oxygen. Uh, or they're just like having to take lots of breaks. And so I decided I was going to stay with a couple people because let's say like, you know, 20, 25 of the people were fine. They just like hiked around, but some people were really having difficulty and, it, you know, different age groups too. Hmm. And so it's getting dusk and like, you're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and like, I'm like, am I going to get eaten by a mountain lion? Like what's going to happen? So we're sitting there and they said, we'll send help back. So they went to the, the final place, the final campsite, um, which was like around the mountain and they sent help back. And in the dusk, you can see like, there's like a shadow moving towards us, like a big shadow. I'm like, what is that? And as they, you hear this like whistling uh, and as they get closer, there's um, their yaks. It's a herd of yaks is what they sent to help us. So the yaks have these big rugs on their back. So we hop up on the yaks and a yak, it has a, it's paw. It's not a hoof, like a, like a cow. It's, it's like fingers. It's like three fingers that are like hooves. So it can actually grab onto rocks. So when a yak is, it, it can climb up over rocks while you're on its back. Mm. So it's like riding a cow that can climb. <laughs> and they have these giant horns and they're like, bashing into each other just for fun as you're like riding on <laughs> on them so there was like six of us riding these riding these yaks back that sort of saved us um and the the place where we landed was uh the campsite for the night was at the base of a of a river or a, a river from the mountains so you can look up and see mount kailash and the next morning we got up and started hiking towards straight towards the mountain so we were like a quarter of the way around the mountain, but we wanted to hike just towards it for a day. And there's snow falling down off the mountain and you're hiking up and there's sort of like a river that disappears as you get higher. So the, the, the river sort of, or the path split and you can go to the left of the river or to the right. So I went to the right. I'm climbing up and I was hiking faster than everybody else. Everybody was like tired because the altitude and I was feeling pretty good. So I'm climbing up, climbing up and the, the the trail started to turn a little bit. So it went from being flat 
being like on an incline off to the left. And then it got really steep on the incline and I just grabbed onto the side of it and I slipped down a little bit. I was right, there's like a landing right above me, but I slipped down and underneath the dirt, I just saw ice. And then I looked down below me and there's a river to my left where it's just the base of the river is ice. It's actually a glacier. Mm -hmm. And the river slide, this, the river goes underneath the glacier. So if I had slipped, I would have fallen into the glacier. Mm -hmm. I would have slipped down the ice river, like under the glacier. And so I scrambled, scrambled up, scrambled up all the way up to the top, get up to the top, like out of breath and breathing. See beautiful. I look up to see like the beautiful mountain. Um, you know, there's snow like <sighs> falling down onto the glacier. And I look to my right and there's this guy sitting there. You know, this big red jacket. And he says, he's like, his eyes are all glossed over. And he says, have you seen my friends? And I said, um, I'm sorry, I have not seen your friends. And I like look back down the river. I look back at him. Like we should probably find a way back down. Hmm. So we hiked up more towards the mountain. And eventually we had to cross over the, the sort of glacier. So we're walking, we're like tapping and the glacier's like, goo, 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 you know, like cracking. And on the other side, the Sherpa's saying, come, come, come. So we thought it was safe. So we start going over the glacier and it's like, things are cracking, we're coming across. And we finally get over the other side and the Sherpa's like, oh, you are very brave. Like, you probably shouldn't have done that. I'm like, well, thanks for, for waving us over. He's like, yes, it's okay. Someone always dies. And it was like, what? Say so, yes. When we got to the end, he was like, "You're the first group. Nobody died." Holy crap! <laughs> yeah, we we're like unbelievable. Like, thanks for telling us that ahead of time. Oh um, my god! But it was it was a pretty amazing sort of trip. That's quite the story. I'll tell you that for sure. So something I should have asked you, I guess, in the very beginning is, what did your friends and family think when you said, "I'm going to go off and become a monk in in uh, Burma"? Yeah, I think for my parents, I think it was hard for them. At, at first, they knew that they'd seen meditation like change me. You know, I became more concentrated, focused, taking care of myself, you know, quitting a lot of bad habits, that sort of thing. So they saw that it was really helpful. So they thought, oh, he's just going to meditate more. And I, mm -hmm. I think they thought that was cool. But as soon as I was like, I'm going to ordain as a monk and I shaved my head and put on a robe, I think especially my mom got freaked out. She's like, what is happening? And I think it took them a while to sort of say, to meet a bunch of other monks and see like, okay, this is okay. It's not some weird thing. And, um, and then I think they, the fact that they saw me changing, I think that ju that just helped them that I was getting healthier. Um, I think that was just what, what sort of calmed them down. And now, you know, I just did a three month course and my mom and three sisters took the course and everybody meditates and which is pretty cool. So sure. I think it's overall, it's been a, a positive, positive thing for everybody. So you were, you were a monk for, it was, what was it, six years? Is that what it was? Yeah. So during that time, I mean, were they able to visit you or were you able to come back and visit them? Yeah. So in general, you take space um, because the idea when you're a monk is that you know, you usually have certain habits of being in the world of interacting and you learn a lot of that from your family and from your culture, that sort of thing. And the idea is that you take a step back, you learn all these new skills for the first like five years of being a monk, and then you go back out mm -hmm. into the world. Um, and 
So usually it, you're, it's suggested that you keep some space um, because you're learning a new way of being in the world. Um, so I saw them, you know, I saw, probably saw my parents twice a year um, and my sister is probably less so, uh, but I'd go back, we'd give teachings in the United States and I'd, they'd come to those and I'd meet with them and hang out for a while. They'd come and visit the monastery like once a year. Like they came and the Dalai Lama came to Germany. They like came and saw the Dalai Lama and got to meet everybody and um, that sort of thing. So from, from the beginning on how they reacted all the way to the end and, and what made you, I guess, leave being a monk a, a after six years? I think um, two things. I remember sitting in meditation in Burma. And this is when my meditation was like at its, I feel like I was in the best shape, you know? I had this insight that I really wanted a balance in my life. And I wanted to be able to meditate, to be able to feel, um, but also to be able to feel like I was surrounded by my culture as well. Um, that was really important to me. And I was pretty lonely, you know, in all these different Asian cultures, like it's fine, like they're great, but it's not where I grew up and not around people that were, you know, um, similar to me in that way. And I really missed that when I, came to some realizations about myself and about the world in meditation, I thought, man, I have to share this with people. I have to share this with like people that I love, people that I care about. And I feel like I have a unique perspective. I, I don't know anybody who's gonna go to Burma and learn all these ancient techniques. Um, and I wanna bring them back. And, you know, they're taught in Pali or Sanskrit or whatever. And, you know, it's not just taught in a language, it's cultural translation. So I wanted to share that with other people too. And I wanted to have a family. Like I wanted that experience as a human being. Uh, and so you can't really have a family as a monk, you know, you're a celibate monk, you know, and I was celibate during my twenties, which was like, I don't know, I was, should have waited until I was like 65 or something. <laughs> um, but uh, wanting to have a family, knowing that I had to like go back to school probably um, and then I wanted to find a way to have a family, have a good living, and also teach meditation mm -hmm. um, a, a, as a main thing, like share that with other people. And that took me, you know, five, 10 years to really put all the pieces together to sort of realize that vision. And I feel like finally, like I'm in a pretty good spot. Like I put this stuff together. I feel good about what I'm doing. It's based in, you know, there's science behind it. There's tradition, like experience of working with people. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit about exactly what you're doing and what uh, skillful means is. Yeah. So whether it's from a religious perspective or from a, a, a medical meditation sort of perspective, uh, I feel like a lot of these practices, they teach you meditation and then they're like, okay, you know, go practice and that's it. Um, unless you're in like a religious you know, and then sort of your, you have the whole religion, which is, I don't know, there's some cultural sort of stuff that's stuck to, to religion, um, especially like the different types of Buddhism. And that's not just this main sort of practice, which I think is the main helpful piece. So I was like, okay, how can we take these pieces from the, the wisdom traditions, from the medical system, and take the stuff that, you know, fits together and create a practice that's fun that people can continue to practice, mix it a little bit with psychology. So um, we can help people not just to learn this meditation practice, but apply it to their life in a real practical way. You know, develop insight about who you are, how, what feelings that you're having, how your mind works, and then apply it to your relationships. 
Um, and a key piece of that, like there's really four pieces. So one is helping people define their picture of well-being. So letting them create that for themselves uh, rather than having it dictated from outside, like what you're supposed to do in the world or how you're supposed to be really saying like this acting in this way brings me well-being, you know, developing these areas of my life brings me well-being. So that's skillful means that the company that I've developed and the, all the courses that come out of it are based on first on this, not just developing your, your picture of well-being, but helping other people to do the same and respecting that individual vision. The second piece is developing the skills. So in my case, systematic meditation practice, mindfulness-based meditation practice, or my wife, um, she does nutrition, sort of insightful nutrition stuff. So um, from her perspective, it's learning about the body, learning the cues from the body and some of the science behind the microbiome and metabolism and all that sort of stuff. And then three is integrating it into your life. And I have sort of a system to help people to do that. And then creating a community, not just as the skillful means community, but at home, you know, which of your friends actually will support you to do more exercise or meditate more or the things that actually you feel like are helpful to you. And intentionally building up and bolstering that community of people who respect your personal vision of well-being. Um, so we have like a system of all of our courses and classes, you go through and develop these things, develop your community of support. Um, and we're pretty open uh, in that perspective. So we have some online courses, have a new website coming up um, and we're continuing to sort of uh, develop relationships with different people who teach different types of, types of meditation, yoga, nutrition, that sort of thing, to have a whole sort of wellness academy, so to speak. Now that's, that's cool. So you said you have a website coming up. Is there a way that if people are listening to it now that they can connect with, whether it's skill for means or whether it's, it's you, how are people going to connect? Yeah. So um, skillfulmeans.life is my website. Find my information there uh, as well, skillfulmeans.life. And they can see some of the courses and um, uh, if they want to work with me individually as well, there's, there's, there's some options there. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's been a absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, yeah. You know, I, you, when I, when I first asked to, to speak with you, I don't think it, it's super common just to be able to, to speak to someone who has had the experiences you have and kind of um, I guess, stepped away from it. Um I, you, you've got the ultimate, you know, I guess kind of uh, not, not necessarily party trick, but you, what's a, what's a fun fact about you? You, you've got one that's pretty good, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been just as, as good as I thought it would be. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that you, you really kind of told us a lot about an area that we don't know too much about. I mean, a lot of people know about the robes and the shaved heads and, the chanting, but, but everything else people didn't know. I got a feeling a lot of people and during one part that you were talking, just kind of picturing somebody in the robe with the shaved head in the monastery, emailing people was kind of an interesting <laughs> thought. So, yeah, right. so I'll tell you, it was, it was a pleasure and, and I, I'm, I'm glad for your time and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you decided to join me. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the questions too. You definitely pulled a lot of stuff out of me. So I, 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 I had a lot of fun. Oh, good. And that was my interview with William Jackson. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you learned a lot. I know I did. I really had no idea exactly what the life of a monk looks like. Um, 
it, it sounds like quite the experience, um, not one that a lot of us, I think, that will be able to, uh, to do. And I think that's, that's the reason why his company is, is so cool. Um, it gives you some of those, uh, those teachings without having to spend seven years in the jungle yourself. Um, so hope you enjoyed that. Really glad you were here today. Um, hope to see you next time. Uh, it's sure to be a, another interesting guest uh, talking about t- something totally different. Um, that's kind of the beauty of this podcast. We can talk to a, a lot of interesting people, um, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful that you uh, decided to join me. And with that, I will see you next time. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.